You're listening to Houston. We have a podcast where we talk everything and anything movies and their reviews. And this is episode 14. Hey everybody, Show here. Welcome to Houston We Have a Podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. Houston We Have a Podcast is produced every two weeks for your enjoyment, and show notes can be found at houstonwehaveapodcast.libsyn, which is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite feed or on iTunes, and you can follow me on Twitter at S-N-S-A-L-L-I. That's S-N-S Alley. You know, for once, I am actually going to follow through with the movies that I said I would cover. In the last episode, I said we were going to do the Disaster Artist adaptation of the book, the Disaster Artist adaptation of the movie The Room. That's all one thing, by the way. I said we were going to do a review of The Shape of Water, directed by Guillermo del Toro. He of Penn's Labyrinth, Crimson Peak, and Pacific Rim, amongst other things. And I said we were going to listen to an interview I previously did with my friend Cody Piper, a fan of Godzilla movies as well as monster movies in general. And guess what? All three of those things are going to be in this episode. So because we're fitting three things into this episode versus just the regular two reviews, I won't be too long with the intro to each segment, and I think we're going to have some abbreviated reviews as well. So we're trying something new, going to do a bit more rapid-fire takes on things, So I hope you enjoy these next reviews, but for now we're going to start with James Franco's The Disaster Artist. is a really interesting one because it's based on the book The Disaster Artist which itself is based on the making of The Room which is supposedly the worst movie ever made now the book is written by Greg Sestero Uh, he was an actor in The Room one of the two primary actors along with Tommy Wiseau who is probably nothing short of a legend at this point in the man's career but I said The Room is supposedly the worst movie ever made and I suppose that is a bit of a misnomer since it should probably say, you know, the worst movie ever made in a serious sense. There have been bad movies made that are, of course, far worse. And I think in the, when I last, when I first mentioned The Disaster Artist, I think in the kind of tease for episode 13, I mentioned Sharknado, right? And those kind of movies are intentionally made to be that way. Or, you know, I think I also mentioned, what, Father Figures and... I believe Grown Ups and like Grown Ups 2, for example, those movies are quick bucks. I think they all, they all know they're terrible movies. There's a certain demographic or a certain, I guess, age group or, or, or whatever that goes see those movies. But The Room is not, I wouldn't put The Room in the category of those movies because Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero intentionally were trying to make a good movie. They were legitimately trying, and of course it turned out to be horribly terribly bad in every single conceivable way now in terms of the disaster artist the movie itself is this one of the funniest not 
like straight comedy of the whole year. When I say not straight comedy, I mean like it's not a movie where, you know, they, they mine cheap gags. I mean, I think it might be, honestly. I mean, apart, apart from the actual funny source material, there are a ton of extremely talented people and extremely talented comedians in this movie. The movie stars are, of course, James and Dave Franco, the two brothers, and Seth Rogen with Alison Brie are in supporting roles. But there are so many people who cameo in this film. Megan Mullally, Hannibal Buress, Jason Mantzoukas, Paul Scheer, Zac Efron, Josh Hutcherson, Bob Odenkirk, Randall Park, Judd Apatow. The list goes on and on and on. And that doesn't even touch upon the celebrities who kind of cold, open style frame the movie at the beginning. It's pretty much just... James Franco getting all his Hollywood buddies in his movie. And I think the most remarkable thing about this is it's not just another dumb comedy like This is the End or something where they mine this for cheap laughs, but it's actually a very well-made movie. I mean, and, and don't get me wrong. There are tons and tons of silly and cheap jokes and laughs, but they come almost from a more genuine place. And it's, it's so interesting and so fascinating to watch. And I'll say this, though. Right off the bat, while the movie is really funny, a lot of the humor comes from the anticipation of seeing parts of the room essentially remade within this film, if that makes sense. Watching the movie without any context is still very entertaining because the narrative is pretty clear. You watch it without knowing the room, you're watching a movie that is ultimately about a disaster, you know, and you're knowing you're knowing going in that it's basically these weirdos are making a movie that ends up terribly and you're as you're watching it you're kind of like you the audience member are saying yeah of course this is going to be terrible because they cut corners here and they do this there and they do that there right and that's fine that's fine if you go in without knowing anything about the movie it's based on you're still going to laugh you're still going to really enjoy it because james franco's performance along with everyone else's but really his is really good but knowing about the movie knowing about the room beforehand enriches your experience seeing the disaster artist that much more now, I would be a little surprised, talking about James Franco's acting, I would be surprised if he did not, did not, I should say, I suppose, get nominated for an Oscar for this movie. And that might sound a little presumptuous of me, but honestly, he completely disappears into the role of Tommy Wiseau, the director, producer, writer, lead actor of The Room in real life. And again, as someone who has seen Tommy Wiseau in real life, it's pretty impressive just how much of his little weird mannerisms Franco captures for this movie. It does bring up an interesting point about acting and what that entails, since Franco is essentially acting as a bad actor. So is he really acting? I'm not saying he's a bad actor, but is he just hemming it up? Is, is that in itself acting? Does it matter since it's a performance entirely? I honestly don't really know. And I've never really acted before. That's not true. I was in a few plays and I was quite terrible in them. But I'm not sure, honestly, what to make of that. I'll be completely, I'll, I'll, I'll be straight with you guys. But at the same time, it's very entertaining, so I didn't let it bother me too much because it's it's entertaining. I believed he was he was Tommy Wiseau, and again, I said maybe maybe him getting nominated for an Oscar is a little presumptuous. But then again, we've seen things like that get nominated before. I'm not saying he's going to win. I don't think he's going to win. I've not seen the the Darkest Hour yet with Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill, and as I understand, he seems to be the front runner. I want to see that movie as well. Maybe we'll do that in a future podcast before the Oscars. But I've not seen that one yet. But I get the sense that James Franco could be nominated kind of as a congratulations nomination, knowing that he's not going to win, kind of like Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder or, or uh, Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean for uh, Jack Sparrow, right? So I could see it being something like that. The Academy is not above doing things like that. It's almost like a good job, good job, champ, good job. 
Because <laughs> we know he's not going to win, right? The Academy, as much as they like movies that are about making movies, as we saw with Birdman, they also hate comedies, right? So, I mean, this is kind of in the middle. But regardless, it's a very entertaining movie. Now, Dave Franco, James's younger brother, he puts in a great performance as Tommy Wiseau's co-star and friend, uh, Greg Sestero. It's a believable tale of two friends whose paths diverge at different parts of their life, especially around the making of The Room, and Dave Franco is great at Greg. He's very earnest, I find. That's, that's one of his best qualities as an actor, and we see that a lot in other movies like Neighbors or um, 21 and 22 Jump Street, right? Uh, he, he's really entertaining, and he's like kind of like naively earnest, even though I'm sure he's not like that in real life. Uh, Seth Rogen is equally entertaining, as he usually is, as the cranky script doctor slash second unit director and a lot of the best comedic moments in the movie honestly they come from him looking baffled at what's unfolding in front of the cameras now they wisely save the best part for last after the movie is done and we get a few i guess like quote-unquote real looks at how the room has become a cult classic in real life complete with shots of audiences throwing spoons at the screen and i will say this those screenings are incredibly entertaining i should mention i've been to a number of them when i was in university uh, then the movie itself does something very unique. Before the credits roll, the filmmakers air actual clips from the real movie, from the real The Room, right? And right next to them, they have... So they kind of... You have to picture this on, in your head, I guess. You're watching this movie screen, and on one half of your screen, on the left-hand side, you have one half of the screen taken up by a clip of the actual movie, The Room. And then on your right-hand side, right next to the real clip, you have versions of those exact scenes, but with James Franco, Dave Franco, and company. And, and frankly, it's amazing that they essentially recreated, what, like six or seven of the more famous scenes in the movie. You're tearing me apart, Lisa. Oh, hi, Mark. Those things, right? And they are exact replicas, down to the outfits, the shots, the timings, the edits, the surroundings. Some of the scenes apparently were shot in the exact same location, which is amazing, honestly. It's very lovingly done. And like I said, Hollywood loves movies about making movies. So to see this get some love at the Oscars, like I said, James Franco, maybe for Best Actor, maybe be maybe a nomination, and maybe even a win of a Best Adapted Screenplay, since it's, uh, is, it's, an, it's an adaptation of a book. I would not be surprised at all to see it get some love at the Oscars. I, I really wouldn't be. And it's just it's, it's just so entertaining. Honestly, I, I mentioned this before, and I think that, that was probably... If you take nothing else away from this movie, if you like laughing at movies like this, and if you like the kind of humor that you've seen in other movies made by James Franco, by Seth Rogen, by those guys, then I think you should see this film. Because, again, even if you haven't seen The Room, it's still entertaining to the point where you can get something out of it. So it's funny, it's well acted, it's entertaining, and there's just there's just no reason not to see it unless comedies are not your thing, which is fair. But I would give a wholehearted recommendation for anyone who wants to see The Disaster Artist. We're going to jump from one movie bound for the Academy Awards right to another. So without further ado, here is The Shape of Water. You'll never know just how much I miss you You'll never know just how much 
I care. Directed by Guillermo del Toro, this is, in my estimation, the best movie of the year. And I don't mean just in 2018, since it's only been a few days, a week or so. I mean in the last month. It's excellent. It is amazing. It is emotionally satisfying. Everything about this movie brims with color and detail, and I can't wait to see it again, and not just because it was entirely filmed right here in my native Toronto. Of course, awesome. But before we get into the smaller kind of themes and metaphors of the movie, because they're really cool, I do want to talk about the acting, because you can't, I mean, you can't talk about any movie without talking about the acting, but the acting, of course, is in an Oscar movie, all the more important. I shouldn't say in an Oscar movie, but in a movie that's so clearly bound for the Academy Awards, like I mentioned, you can't not talk about it, right? And so the standout, obviously, to me, is Sally Hawkins. She is the mute cleaning lady who falls in love with the fish man, which we'll call him from now on, since I don't actually think he was ever named. But she does so much acting with her face and her hands because she's playing a mute person. And I honestly wonder if Sally Hawkins actually knew already sign language or if she learned it for the movie or even if she still doesn't know it and that's all that she did was acting which would also be quite impressive because there's a really powerful scene where she she's emphatically communicating with her co-star Richard Jenkins demanding that he read back or I, I shouldn't say read I should say well he is reading he's reading what she's signing but then say back to her or to out loud what she is signing to him so he so she knows he understands what she is signing, right? And not only does she get the raw emotion to shine through without any words, but because Del Toro makes the choice to take away the subtitles from her sign language in the in that scene, you, the viewer, are watching both of them intently, her to see what she's doing and the, to see the expressions on her face, because, I mean, unless you know sign language yourself, you're also not going to necessarily understand. So you're watching her face and her hands to kind of see the meaning behind it, because it does, it does her, her facial expressions do, does give it meaning, right? and Jenkins both to see how he reacts and for him to translate what she's saying, right? And it's just a fantastic scene. Easily one where I didn't even realize I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. And honestly, when this movie eventually gets nominated for an Oscar, when she eventually gets nominated, if not wins, for Best Actress, I could totally see that scene be... You know, like at the Oscars, they always play a scene from every person's performance and then they kind of like play it and then, every, and then they kind of go back to the person and they all clap and then they move on to the next person, right? Before the award is, is given out. That is the scene that I bet when she's nominated will be played at the Oscars kind of like for all the viewers and everyone in the theater, right? It's so, 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 so good. And now speaking of Richard Jenkins, it would have been so easy for his character Giles to be a caricature. He's a closeted gay man, and considering the movie takes place during the Cold War, it would have been really easy for him to be a racist, a bigot, etc., and he refreshingly wasn't. We see his heartbreaking interaction with the kind of homophobic racist guy, really double whammy there, who runs the pie shop, who unfortunately was also Canadian, although at least he was from Ottawa, not from Toronto, so take that, Ottawa. Uh, but it really makes you feel bad for the guy, you know? He's just a simple guy who was probably laid off from his job, as we can infer, and is just trying to make it in the world. He's a very talented artist, and he kind of takes his work back to his old company to sell it to them as a freelancer, you know? I almost feel like you can infer later on in the movie that he was laid off because he's gay, but it's never explicitly stated, you know? And he's, he's just a very sweet, complex character, and he's just generally interesting to watch and to, to interact and to take in his scenes. And, you know, there's, there's just so much good acting. Octavia Spencer, Michael Shannon, and Michael Stuhlbarg round out the supporting cast, and they're all just, they're just phenomenal. 
Michael Silberg is Bob, the scientist, scientist Bob, I guess, but you learn that he's actually a Russian spy named Dmitri. Um, Octavia Spencer in particularly is very funny as the loyal friend Sally Hawkins is Eliza. Her, her character's name is Zelda. And uh, she's entertaining with a large personality. She's almost kind and sweet. Um, and that shows in, in, in the various things she's do- she does for Eliza, including her friend, holding her friend's place in line and helping her with the escape of the fish man. Because, of course, the plot of this movie, uh, if you didn't understand already, is that this woman falls in love with the fish man and breaks him out and is on the run from Michael Shannon, who is a kind of relic of the Cold War, who is desperate to do his job lest he gets, quote-unquote, unmade, as he is told by a high-ranking general later on, right? So they're all just trying to get by, trying to do their thing. Shannon, too, Michael Shannon, he's so good at being, like, a bad guy, kind of. He's always at his best when he plays, like, an unhinged character, right? Like, I mean, if you think, if you think back to Man of Steel and you see him as General Zod, he's so good at it, right? Early on, he gets two of his fingers, in the, in the movie, of course, uh, bitten off by the fish man, and Eliza finds them and gives them back to him, and he has them surgically reattached. They're a little gray, but he hopes they'll take, you know, the, the muscles and the tendons and stuff. And, of course, they don't, and they begin to rot from there on out. It's a little on the nose, but I think almost like as he goes deeper down the rabbit hole of dark things, you know, he fetishizes the mute cleaner, Eliza. He's distrustful of people at work. He's violent, etc. His fingers get more and more rotten. And it's also reflected in his car. He buys it. He buys a new, a brand spanking new Cadillac. And in the very first day, the car's headlight, right? The edge of it, getting it smashed in. And he drives around a broken car, much like he is broken, right? And I think that was, I thought that was really interesting. And to go further with the metaphors and the symbolism and stuff, one of the things that Guillermo del Toro does in all of his movies is play with the idea of color and representation via that color. He's done it in Pan's Labyrinth and Pacific Rim, especially in Crimson Peak, and that carries over to The Shape of Water. So very early on, for example, we hear it stated that green is the color of the future. I think that's almost like a direct quote from someone. And del Toro does his best to impress upon the viewer that that is the case at every single point. We see the bus that Sally Hawkins takes to work is green. Her uniform is green. The lab is green. The lights are green. The neon sign at the pie shop is green. The key lime pie itself they sell is green. The Jello and Richard Jenkins drawing is redrawn is green because that's what the ad agency wants. And the candy that Michael Shannon eats is green. And his Cadillac is green. Even the fish man himself is shades of blue and green. Maybe blue for the water, green for the future. It's just ever-present throughout the film. There's a really interesting kind of red-green motif here, right? We'll come back to that in a second, because one of my favorite things he does in the movie is continuing that theme of color. So, for example, I mentioned that Sally Sally Hawkins' uniform is green, right? She wears a headband as well, uh, also green. And when she first meets the fishman, after they interact a few times, she starts wearing a red headband, and as their relationship progresses, she starts wearing a red coat, And that just keeps on going, I think, throughout the whole movie. And as she helps the fish man escape from the lab, she succumbs and buys the red shoes that she had kind of eyed very early on in the movie. And I think that kind of signifies the idea of her being totally in love with the fish man is now complete, right? She's now head to toe red even though i mean even though underneath she's wearing the 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 red the the green dress rather she has the red headband the red coat and then to kind of remain subversively red at work she she has uh you know the red shoes 
it, I guess it was just a great way, I thought, to visually show the relationship progressing, especially because we don't see the Fishman for large periods of time while Hawkins is on screen pretty much more than anyone else. Makes sense. She's the star, right? But it was just kind of cool to see that so subtly, I suppose. Now, another thing that I thought was really interesting was that sexuality is presented in a very normal way, which is kind of cool considering we're not really used to that in, like, Western cinema, right? We see Eliza masturbating. We see Strickland, Shannon's character, having sex with his wife. Uh, you know, we see her breasts and stuff. We see the we get the fish man and Eliza having sex later on. So it's it's presented as casual as it could have been, all things considered. It's not pornographic either. It's just kind of there, very normalized, which I thought was kind of nice. Honestly, you don't get that very often in a in a movie like that. Although ultimately, I feel as though this movie is about conformity being something versus being something you're not. Every one of the main characters is uh, an outsider of sorts, right? Eliza is mute. The Fishman is a monster. Giles is gay. Zelda is black. Dimitri is a communist spy. They're all opposed to Strickland. Again, Michael Shannon's Cold War kind of like brutal soldier guy who is essentially every stereotype and representation of the Cold War wrapped up into one unhinged character, right? Even the colors work in different ways. I mentioned the red-green motif, and this is where I wanted to mention it again. Green, like we said, is the future represented by the new Cadillac, and it's represented by the lab, it's represented by America, right? Whereas red, as you might imagine, is love, but also the idea that something that breaks that conformity, like perhaps the Russians and, you know, the red scare, right? I don't know, it's, it, it's just so well done, I thought. It, it's, it's so interesting. The, the, one of the last things I thought was super interesting to me, and I, you know, I just said interesting like five times in a row, but one of the things that is really grabs you, right? Eliza has scars in her throat three on each side, explained away to you, the viewer, I mean, to the other characters as well, but directly to you, the viewer, that she was found by the river as a baby with the scars on her neck, which is why she's mute. She doesn't know what her, she doesn't know who her parents are. She doesn't know what happened to her neck, right? Maybe she had into an accident. Maybe she was in, I, I suppose they assume she was in some kind of boating accident. She washed ashore. Her parents died in the accident and she got cut there. Her vocal cords were cut. And she's a mute as a human being. Uh, at the end of the movie, Michael Shannon's character, you know, the climax is they're kind of helping the fish man escape. They're going to dump him into like the kind of canal so he can like swim to the ocean. And Michael Shannon gets there just in time and he shoots um, the fish man a number of times and then shoots Eliza a number of times as well. Now it was shown in the movie earlier that the fish man has healing power. So he heals himself. The, the bullet holes go away. He's completely fine. But of course, Eliza is a human, cannot heal herself from being shot multiple times. And after they kind of dispatch Michael, Ken Michael Shannon's character, the fish man takes Eliza and he jumps into the water with her. And we, the viewer then see him use his healing power on her and she kind of like comes back to life or, or is healed, I suppose. Maybe she doesn't necessarily die, but she comes back to life and her scars become gills and they live happily ever after. And you learn that, you know, her scars were a source of strength instead of a weakness all along. Now, some interesting ways to read this, other than reading it literally, that like this man, this fish man saved her life, turned her into like a fish woman and they live happily ever after. Another interesting way to read it is perhaps maybe she was a fish person all along. Right, I mean, she was found by the by the riverbank as an orphan. Maybe, maybe the the uh, the scars on her neck were actually gills, and humans found her, sewed them up, thinking they were injuries. She thought they were scars, and the fishman merely heals her at the end. 
not like she doesn't he doesn't transform her and he just unlocks her true potential or you know what even further the movie is kind of bookended by narration by god by, by giles at the very beginning at the very end he doesn't narrate the whole film just those two parts and at the end of the movie it's possible she just straight up dies and he doesn't know what's happening he's he's essentially speculating it's hard to describe because i don't remember exactly what he says at the movie at the end of the movie but he says something like Oh, I don't know if they lived happily ever after. Who knows if they stayed together? Something like that. He says something to that extent, and it's possible because he doesn't know he is an unreliable narrator and that she she just dies and that he is imagining what he would like to have happen to his best friend, right? I don't know which is true, but you could argue to me any one of those three endings, and I would buy it because they all make sense within what you, the viewer, have been shown within the film. So it, it, that is why I think the movie is so great. No detail that that is early on shown to you as the viewer is, is missed going back. You know, she writes on the, in the calendar and that's a, to, you know, to, to remind herself to take the fish man on this certain day to the canal. And when Michael Shannon arrives at her empty apartment, he sees that and that's what leads them to her, you know, stuff like that. Right. So it's, it's a fantastic movie. I think it's my favorite movie of the year. I think it's the best movie of the year and the shape of water deserves all the accolades that are undoubtedly coming its way this March. One thing I didn't mention in my review of The Shape of Water was that Guillermo del Toro has always been a big fan of the creature from the Black Lagoon, which I suppose is one of the few remaining monster movies that has not really been slated for a remake. You know, they've remade The Mummy, they're remaking, they remade Dracula, they're remaking Frankenstein and Frankenstein's Bride with this whole kind of dark universe monster thing. And the creature from the Black Lagoon is not one of the ones on the slate. I think it's because of some rights issue, I believe, but regardless, the creature from the Black Lagoon is probably one of the more famous monsters in terms of, like, the silver screen, right? It's It, it deserves to be made into a more famous, or I should say a more, a more up-to-date version, I suppose, and it's probably one of the lesser-known characters, so it would be cool to see that. Now, I think... I've only seen it once, and it was a long time ago, but... Fishman in The Shape of Water is kind of like that creature, right? He's like the creature from the Black Lagoon. He kind of looks like it. He's clearly inspired by it, at the very least. And I remember reading an interview with Guillermo del Toro saying he kind of wished there had been some romance in that movie, whereas there was because there wasn't in the original movie that came out in like the 30s or 40s or whenever it came out. And in that sense, he wanted to pay kind of like an homage to it with The Shape of Water, which I think he did pretty successfully. Now, I mention all this because in the, in the theme of monsters, I spoke to my friend, Cody Piper, who is a big-time fan of the monster movies. He's a big-time fan of Godzilla specifically. So I decided to talk to him so we could get a little sense of something a little outside the box. Here's my interview with Cody Piper, videographer and fan of movies like Shin Godzilla, American Godzilla movies, and monster movies everywhere. Happy to be joined now by Cody Piper, videographer and ardent Godzilla fan. Cody, thanks for joining me. Uh, it's good to be here. So, Cody, we were talking a lot. We've talked a lot about Shin Godzilla and Godzilla in general and monster movies. So, and you lent me the Shin Godzilla Blu-ray, and I, I thank you for that. It was actually a really good movie, more more than what I expected. I guess I, I'm not really well versed. I, I freely admit with. Japanese cinema or, or, or Eastern cinema, I should say, on the whole. So it was actually a pretty cool treat to see one of your favorite movies. Yeah, I mean, like, I 
first off, I'm not one of those people, because being a Godzilla, it is very out there kind of thing. I'm not one of those people who expects people to, like, hop on it like they would, like, you know, like a Lord of the Rings or a Star Wars. But it is an acquired taste, especially because, yeah, and this was, in this case, uh, this time around, it was a more different than most Godzilla movies because they took quite a long time. They really took their time with this one. Most ones, they kind of just pump out. So, okay. Yeah. So this one came out in 2016, Shin Godzilla. I've also read that it's also been called Godzilla Resurgence. And that was, yeah, that was one of their original names, but they didn't want to get it confused with uh, the Independence Day Resurgence. Right, right. Okay. That's probably for the best. That movie was horrible, but, uh, <laughs> It's not obviously currently in theaters, but with some more monster movies, including a Western version of Godzilla on the horizon, I thought it'd be a good time to talk about the latest addition to the Godzilla universe. And there's a lot to Yeah, unpack. they're actually coming out. No, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say they're actually coming out uh, soon on Netflix, an animated one. So. Oh, really? Yeah. What's that one called? Um, it hasn't been out yet. It's in theaters, but they're going to release it in sometime in the next year it's called it's a trilogy it's called first one's called planet of monsters but it's the first time they're doing a trilogy like a animated godzilla like anime style so the first time ever yeah they've never done an animated before i mean hannah barbera the company behind like the flintstones and stuff they've done their own version but the japanese themselves have never done like a full-fledged anime Really? That, that, I'm almost surprised by that, considering you know the the history behind anime and manga and whatnot in 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 Japan. Yeah, I mean they are two of their biggest like mediums. Yeah, yeah. so they finally come together. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. I guess it uh, took them long enough. I guess, but I I, I yeah. actually think I would watch that, if, especially if it comes to Netflix. It's such an easy way to consume media when it's just on this like streaming service that most people in North America, I would imagine, have access to in just in some respect, right? Yeah. Well, we were talking about Godzilla, and there's a lot to unpack with the idea of Godzilla. So but before we get into that, though, what makes Shin Godzilla, the 2016 version, so unquestionably Godzilla? And that's in quotes, I should say, because some critics have actually said that about Shin Godzilla. It's very unquestionably Godzilla. So what makes it, what makes it that? It's kind of weird they say that because they took Godzilla in a really different direction with this movie because it, even at, like when they hired the director, this, uh, the guy Hideaki Anno, he's the guy who's most anime people know is behind the Evangelion series. And that's very far out there in itself. And they made a lot of interesting changes to Godzilla in this movie, but I guess in terms thematically, that's what they mean more behind like the movie itself, like what Godzilla means thematically. Okay. You see like the, the, uh, the two American movies, 1998 and, that one was more reminiscent of, uh, what do you call it, uh, monster movies of the past, like the B science fiction movies of like the 50s, where it's so much like, it's more like nuclear power and things like that is like a gimmick. Just right. to, like, you see like giant bugs and stuff like that. Meanwhile, Godzilla is completely opposite. They don't want to use like nuclear power as a gimmick. They're, they always want to convey the message that nuclear power is something you should not like mess around with because it has such a terrible effect on like the environment people and things like that okay so what i guess what what makes this this shin godzilla movie 
so much different, in your opinion, and I, and I know you said this to me, not just different, but better than the Gareth Edwards Godzilla movie from a few years ago. You know, why have Japanese critics so universally loved it while Western critics have been a little more, you know, so-so on the idea? Um, it's because this movie is, as a whole, it's a giant representation of all that stuff that happened a couple years ago. Uh, they had, they call it 311, it's the whole thing that happened with Fukushima. Right. They had that. They had that giant earthquake there, and the area that got hit. They had a. First off, it's quite insane that they actually built like they built like a, a nuclear power plant like on the waterfront. Okay. Like so close to the water, and basically what happened was, uh, when the huge earthquake hit, like a huge tsunami came in, flooded the city, and that nuclear power plant went into like meltdown mode. They managed to stop most of it, but there were like, there was a lot of damage and still to this day, like a lot of radiation, like that whole plant is uninhabitable. They get this radiation still getting pumped into the water and it created this huge panic with the like the citizens and like they got really mad at the government because they were kind of, covering it up, making it seem like it wasn't that bad when in fact it was. Their reaction time was super slow and just a lot of people got pissed. So this movie was basically like Godzilla himself is a representation of like the power plant and like the government's inability to, you know, kind of make the situation better. So why do you think that, I mean, okay, I guess that definitely answers the question why Japanese critics love it, because that's an issue that is obviously very much, I mean, the whole world paid attention to that, certainly, but of course, Japan, as the country that it happened in, will pay more attention to it than anywhere else. But why then did Western critics, I mean, if you, you know, if you and I could catch on to that, why do Western critics kind of, what, do they do they just put that idea aside and look at it as a movie and, and not what it means to the people of Japan? Um, I, I, well, I think because like, um, I guess the politics, cause it's a very political movie. It's very heavy handed politically. And then a lot of me just from reading about like Godzilla movies, I kind of get a, a feel for what, like what their political climate is at the time. I don't know if like it resonates so much, like the politics of another country compared to like, you know, what goes on in like us or Canada and things like that. But, um, also it's, I guess, because from, I guess a movie making like movie from like a movie is kind of unconventional. Like there isn't really a lot of main characters that people get attached to. Right. They don't really, or the characters that are in the movie, they don't necessarily have like a backstory. They're more of just like, it reminded me a lot of that movie, the, the Martian. Okay. Cause they always cut to like all these different characters, but they don't necessarily, they just have a goal in mind. Like something has happened, but we have to just, we have to just stop it. There's no time for like, oh, my 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 grandmother's at home. I must do this for her. Things right. like that. Like, it's all about like just overcoming something. Okay. And and I, guess... I like the tagline for the movie for the longest. Like a lot of people just thought it was like cool. Like the tagline for the movie was just Godzilla versus Japan, and a lot of people <laughs> just thought that was gonna be like a cool thing. But actually, when you watch the movie, it's literally like Japan itself is a character and. Godzilla is like basically the antagonist. So, I find the the Godzilla movies, and of course, I mentioned this to you before, kind of outside of the podcast. But I'm obviously way more familiar with 
the Western versions of Godzilla. So like I said before, it was very refreshing actually to see this different take, arguably a more original take, even though I know you said that this they, they did a few things different from the Japanese side of Godzilla, but I, I actually really liked this movie. It was, it was very interesting visually. I will say, I don't think the the acting necessarily was always that great. Um, yeah, I think the biggest problem is, but I think that, well, that's a problem that I've noticed a lot in Godzilla movies is when they have the the Japanese actors trying to speak English. Yeah, yeah. And the biggest problem was the one character. She's supposed to be like, she's supposed to, they're building this girl up to be like the next uh, president of the United States. And that she's forgetting like, because she's like half Japanese, half American, and she's forgetting what it is to be like Japanese. But when she speaks English, it does not sound good at all. Yeah, so, I, yeah, exactly, exactly. But a lot of Japanese, it's like whenever I hear like American, the American actors in a movie, it seems kind of jarring. I think that may might have to be more of like a language barrier, but for the most part, like the Japanese acting, I thought was kind of good i can't really tell what constitutes as good acting when it comes to like foreign movies so that's fair i don't I mean, want to go too much <laughs> yeah yeah that's, that's totally fair i i when i when i was talking about the acting i i definitely was talking about that that one actress uh who you just yeah. mentioned she it, it was like like you said it, it was just a little jarring it, it took it just took me out of the movie a little bit but for the most part i, I it was it wasn't too bad it was just that kind of was i guess you know you know people talk about how when there's something wrong that's the thing that someone will nitpick on even though everything else might be good i think that yeah. that's not just yeah. a movie thing right it's for everything so yeah, yeah. I, and that's probably like the only real flaw i would have for this movie i mean it, I, be, I believe you told me and i looked it up uh, in preparation for the interview uh this movie was nominated for 11 japanese academy awards and it won seven of them which is pretty impressive yeah i mean i was shocked myself because i mean he's like i know there's like uh, Godzilla is kind of weird, like because a lot of the movies are just even like in Japan, like before this movie came out, were just seen as kind of like schlock. That's why there was such a huge gap in between. Like the last Godzilla movie was made in Japan was 2004, and that was just savaged by critics. It's called Godzilla: Final Wars, and yeah, that was, did not get that wasn't well received, shall we say? But. Right. They took their time with this one, and I guess, I guess time heals with something. I guess it's like kind of like when you think of like Batman in the way, like it had that terrible movie with Mister Freeze, right? And then they took their time. They kind of let it settle a bit, and then you got a movie like The Dark Knight, and it just resonates with people. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, what the idea of Godzilla? in general, right? Well, we'll next see him here in the West with Godzilla King of the Monsters, which I think comes out in 2019. So what can we expect from this next installment of monster movies with Godzilla here in North America? Um, I mean, like, because they've been... It's kind of interesting, like, the American ones, because the Gareth Edwards movie that came out in 2014, that was interesting in itself, because right from the get-go, that was only supposed to be, like a 40 minute IMAX movie. It was supposed to be like a little co-production. And then they're like, why don't we just make a full fledged, uh, monster movie universe. And so then you see like they made uh, Kong skull Island that doesn't, that's not a, that's a separate movie, but at the end of like, they do the post credits, like they, they pulled the Marvel and they did like, this is going to be a movie universe. Cause they alluded to that. 
and that's where they're going. They want to make like a god, like they're making the King and the Monsters sequel, and then after that, they want to do like a crossover. Whether Godzilla and King Kong are fighting, I'm not sure. Uh, it would be interesting because they did a King Kong versus Godzilla back in the '60s. Right. That that wasn't as good. That's very kind of it, many. It was weird because that movie was more of a comedy and it was more of a it was like an action comedy. It was kind of a statement on like consumerism. It was very weird, but. The special effects were absolutely horrid in that movie, so it would be good, nice to see those two go at it and like with good special effects this time. Yeah, I mean, I think Although, I, I think if there was any, I mean, having seen the Gareth Edwards movie and having also seen Kong Skull Island, those movies, if, if I had to pick one thing about them that I really liked, if I only, if I only could pick one thing, it would be the special effects because all of it looked amazing, especially Kong Skull Island. Everything about it looked great. Yeah, a uh, thing that I really loved about uh, the Gareth Edwards movie that a lot of people kind of don't, I really loved the sound in that movie. For whatever reason, the sound just seemed to work, like uh, Godzilla's roar and things like that, which is, I guess that's one critique I will give of the Shin Godzilla. Is they kind of relied a lot on, uh, a lot of like people who, like, who aren't Godzilla fans might not pick up on it, but they use like a lot of like, old school like sound effects they use in like the 60s and 70s movies so right. it, it was a nice little tribute but it didn't it kind of jarred a little bit for me but i really like i like sound in movies i did like audio courses and stuff like that so like finding out just how much sound means in movies you kind of appreciate it more yeah that's fair i mean like, like when, you, when you watch the original jurassic park it's like and you listen to the sound, it's so much better when you kind of appreciate, like, what goes into making, like, sound design. Have you seen the new uh, Jurassic World trailer? I have. That's... I not really don't know sh- what... I'm not sure how to think about that one. <laughs> I know, me neither, honestly. I saw it yesterday, and I kind of thought to myself, wow, this this is kind of... I mean, we've used the word jarring a lot in this conversation about Godzilla, and I, I, honestly, that's how I would feel. That's how I felt about the trailer. It was just the music was kind of weird, the editing was kind of strange. Like they were having, they yeah. had like funny moments with Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard, and they had serious moments. I don't know. It was really strange. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, I don't know. Um, like you could do like serious and fun moments, like a Pacific Rim. Like I kind of, I really like Pacific Rim, and but when you it, you can't have a jar too much. There has to be kind of like an interesting flow to it. But like when that trailer just seemed a little bit too all over the all over the place for me. That's I would one hundred percent agree. Okay, last question for you, Cody, before I let you go. Yeah. Yes. What would you if you had to pick one of the Godzilla movies? Right. I know you've watched pretty much all of them. Which is your favorite, including Shin Godzilla? What, what would you rank uh, it on top? You mean Including Shin Godzilla? Yeah, let's say. I mean, if Shin Godzilla is your favorite, what would be your next favorite? Um, fuck, you're gonna. There's this one that has a really long title. It okay. came out in uh, 2001. It was called Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah: Giant Monsters All Out Attack. Nice. <laughs> and <laughs> I know it just rolls off your tongue, doesn't it? But what's interesting about that movie? I really liked that movie because I just thought it was when it came out. I it was when I was much younger when I saw it. It was very off the wall. Because in this movie, Godzilla is like, they basically say he's not like a radioactive monster. He's a, like, he's a reincarnation of like dead souls from angry people from World War II. Okay. And I really didn't understand that at the time, but all Godzilla movies kind of have an like, interesting 
political commentary, like social commentary behind it. And the one about this movie, which I kind of read up on, I found it actually really fascinating, was that there was this whole movement in Japan that was very controversial at the time that they wanted to rewrite the history books and take out all of like the negative things they did in like World War Two and things like that to make it make it look like they are more of the good guys. So is this movie is all about just in like remembering the past, whether it was good or not, just kind of accepting what you did and moving forward with it more and more than less than that. And also it just has a lot of Godzilla action. That's the one movie where he's truly a bad guy and he just, he's like an, he's almost like a horror movie villain. He's unstoppable in this movie. So if you're into that kind of like off the wall kind of stuff, I'd recommend that. Awesome. Well, I'll have to put that one on my list. Yes. That's, that's, I will say that's one thing about Shin Godzilla that I will kind of miss. This is the first movie that they kind of departed from the man in the suit technique. They're, they're now going full CGI. So it is kind of, it is the end of an era, but it's kind of interesting to see where it will go from here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, that's something that I feel like has been made famous around the world and, you know, is lampooned and, and respected at the same time in, in all sorts yeah. of films, right? So, yeah, I guess that is, you're right, it is the end of an era. Another, I guess just another small recommendation, it's not so much a Godzilla movie, but you can find it on, like, a lot of mediums like YouTube or the internet. It's a documentary called Bringing Godzilla Down the Size. It's all about the guys who did the uh, special effects and their view of what doing the man in the suit means to them. Okay, that that actually that one sounds quite interesting. So that one, yeah. I'm definitely, I'll definitely watch. Yeah, it's only an hour long. It's a very short thing, and they you see some of the interesting special effects techniques they did because we, I mean, when you see like what the work they put in, it's kind of a lot more interesting, and you just don't you kind of walk away from not just saying, oh, it's just the guy in the suit. Right. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for the recommendations, Cody, and uh, thanks for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anything, anytime you want to learn about monsters, I'm your guy. That was Cody Piper, videographer. I just want to thank Cody again, of course, for joining me on the podcast. I've known Cody for a number of years now, so it was kind of cool to get him on the podcast, talk about something we've talked about off-air more than a few times, and he's very passionate about it and very knowledgeable, as you can obviously tell. So he'll, I am sure, be back on the podcast in the future. Jam-packed episode today, so that will be it from me. Thank you for listening to the various sections of this episode. The Disaster Artist, The Shape of Water, and of course that chat with Cody Piper about Godzilla and monsters. You've been listening to episode 14 of Houston. We have a podcast. Good night. Bass drop, bass drop.